Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in the space. Let's get started. As president of MSM Global Consulting, Maria Marukian's mission is to help organizations develop and implement strategies to create a more equitable and inclusive global workforce and fuel lasting change. For nearly 20 years, Maria has served as a consultant, coach, and facilitator, providing guidance to organizations and leaders on diversity, equity, and inclusion, leadership development, and organizational transformation. Her firm has partnered with hundreds of clients of all industries and sizes, including the State Department, Hazelwood School District, the World Bank, and the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. Maria's work has been featured in Forbes and TD Magazine, and her company was recognized as one of the top 10 diversity and inclusion companies by Manage HR Magazine in 2022. She is a sought-after speaker and has presented on the TEDx stage for big tech, federal agencies, higher education, and multinational corporations. Her popular DEI podcast, Culture Stew, is in its fourth season. Maria is an adjunct faculty at American University and the author of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. Maria lives with her husband and two future peace teachers who regularly coach her on how to navigate conflict and manage her amygdala. All right. I am so excited to have Maria Marukian join me today. And I just want to kind of dive in because you have so many things that you're doing that I'm just really curious to kind of dive into the whole conversation about DEI because, you know, everybody wants to do it and, you know, they're appointing people at the chairman level, you know, the C-level executive, chief diversity officer. And now that we're a couple of years out into it, um, you know, at least, uh, we have a lot of people that are not getting the results that they wanted and all of that kind of stuff. So um, I would love to hear a lot about what you're doing, what your thoughts are. But first, I do want to ask you a little bit about yourself and how you even got to this stage of your life. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Melissa. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. So a little bit of my backstory, I have spent the last 20 years uh, doing organizational culture transformation, leadership development, training, coaching, always with a focus and a lens on diversity, equity, inclusion, intercultural competence, essentially all things human-centered, right? Making sure that people have the, the spaces and the opportunities to Uh, to bring their full selves to work, to have honest and thoughtful dialogues about identity differences and really try to create workplace cultures that work for everyone. I think part of that stemmed from, you know, my, my educational background and some of the opportunities that I had earlier in my career to be mentored by some really incredible 
brilliant people who took me under their wing. And I think even when I go back further and I look at my upbringing, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, a very prototypical white middle-class, you know, uh, middle-income Christian community and family. And on the surface, I think, you know, looking and sounding like a lot of other folks in my, in my space. And yet I also uh, was exposed to differences in a lot of ways from a very young age. Um, I grew up in a multicultural and multilingual household. Uh, My family were immigrants, refugees. And so um, my, my dad's family actually, uh, they fled Turkey during the Armenian genocide in the 1920s. And at the time, you know, it's really interesting um, because many years later, my dad became a, a history teacher and he would often say that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. Uh, and, and I think the reason that they, at the time that they fled uh, Turkey, they were not able to get into the United States where a number of other members of their family had already emigrated because the U.S. had closed its borders to anyone who was not a Western European immigrant coming over. Uh, and so they went to Cuba hmm. and my dad was born in Cuba. And so he grew up in house uh, with his mother speaking Armenian and his name was Varujan. But on the streets of Havana, he spoke Spanish and his name was Florentino. Oh, wow. And he had this very interesting sort of bicultural life and upbringing. And then they came to the United States when he was seen and started all over again. New language, new culture. And so I think that experience really strongly embedded in my life and in my sort of core values, this notion that all of us are more than just one thing. Yes. And when we bring curiosity and a willingness to explore uh, people and look at them as multifaceted, mm-hmm. it's, it leads to such rich and valuable opportunities. Um, and so I really try to constantly hold on to that, even in moments where I feel very judgmental of other people and their ideas or their views or their, you know, their, whatever their behaviors are and how they're impacting me. I really do try to pull myself back and, and that lens of curiosity, what can I learn from these people? Um, And then one other thing that was very important and prominent in my family growing up was I think because of uh, this, this background and this experience to always use whatever power or status I have to be a voice for those who are often being silenced. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's been something that has been a driving force in my life as well. Wow. That is incredible. I love the, I I have to, I had to write that down. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes (laughs) because I'm like, yeah, you know, you can kind of see that it kind of comes around and all of a sudden it's similar, but Maybe not exactly the same, um, but it feels like it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's awesome. I mean, I can't, you know, I mean, I love the fact that you're talking about this complexity of people um, because I think a lot of people, you know, we have the census that makes us check a box and everything doesn't fit in a box. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. And, you know, I often... Um, yeah, just to, to your point about the census, 
I often find myself so frustrated with, you know, having to check those boxes. And yet I also recognize enough to acknowledge that it's important for me recognizing that like race is a social construct. It's kind of made up uh, to, uh, to divide us. And yet at the same time, it's very real. And so if we don't have these conversations about our racial identities, especially those of us who are in, you know, the racial identities that often carry more societal privilege, then that continues to reinforce the stasis that we're in, in our society. Yeah, so true. So true. So then, so you ended up in working in DEI and I know your, your practice, MSM Global Consulting, really kind of develops and implements strategies to create more equitable and inclusive workforces. So can you share, I mean, you know, I know you were, you were doing this work, um, you know, even as George Floyd and all of those things were happening, can you talk a little bit about kind of what that was like for your teams in terms of what you had to go in and do um, once consciousness was actually raised? And, you know, I had a lot of people reaching out like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know. Um <laughs> So what, what, what was it like for, you know, for you and for the team? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about what has been learned and mm. some of the things that you've been doing. Oh, so many. I know that's loaded, huh? So many feelings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, as I look back now, one observation I have is that for years, I felt like I was pushing a boulder uphill to try to convince people in leadership positions that having frank discussions around diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, talking about unconscious bias and holding people accountable for their behaviors that may be contributing to folks feeling excluded, you know, it, it often fell on deaf ears or it would be, okay, Maria, we'll let you do a one hour unconscious bias training, but you know, try to like keep race out of it or it's not just about race. So can't we talk about this like in terms of generational differences because it was what felt safe. Diversity of thought, yes. It, diversity of thought, exactly. <laughs> Cognitive differences, absolutely very important dimensions to talk about. Yeah. And I felt as though, like I said, I was just constantly sort of pushing against that um, that institutional tide of uh, keeping things comfortable and safe. Um, and then 2020 happened and all of a sudden there was this uh, not only desire, but expectation to dive into the deep end of DEI and to have these meaningful conversations and also um, to engage in systemic change, to do it like today. <laughs> right, and, like um, last week, it should have been done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so acknowledging and celebrating that momentum and at the same time trying to help people recognize and see that we're not going to dismantle hundreds of years of oppression overnight. Um, right. And that doesn't mean that we can't put things in place now, but 
but it requires a lot of self-reflection and self-work first for all of us, regardless of the identities that we're bringing. Um, so I think just kind of balancing that sense of urgency mm-hmm. with what we recognize and know is required to uh, create the foundation that's needed to actually make long-term progress was something that I think a lot of my colleagues and I were struggling with. And quite honestly, and I think you know your, your question about how my, my team and my colleagues and I were experiencing this. Also, we've had numerous conversations about just the emotional toll that it takes on DEI practitioners because out of nowhere, we're being asked to do this for, you know, everybody's coming out of the woodwork and either asking for it or as we have been seeing, and again, history rhymes, um, the inevitable backlash uh, Mm -hmm. and resistance and those voices very loudly sometimes um, creating misinformation or or just misunderstanding what this work is about. And so, I think a lot of us did at that time and continue to struggle with the uh, the sense of obligation to like take advantage of this moment in time before it disappears, right? And try to make as much change as possible and respond to and the demand and the desire for this change, and at the same time not burn ourselves out. Yeah, um, and so that's been something that I think. I don't have a clear, you know, answer. I'm still working on it too, but um, but I've tried really hard over the last three years to um, ensure that my team is taking a step back to breathe. Um, yeah. When they. Get. Well, and it's, I mean, it's so real, right? Because even though you're focused on DEI, like we're we're people, <laughs> we're going through yeah. it too, right? So, you know, just being able to to spotlight the fact that. Sometimes we have to just slow down, just stop and, you know, make sure that we're taking care of ourselves as well. That's awesome. So then are there, um, and I know you do a lot of training and, you know, we talked, I know we talked a lot about just embedding DEI into everything. Cause I think, I think people were like, oh, we need DEI, mm. but not necessarily like, what does DEI and marketing mean or DEI and, you know, legal or, you know, in all of these different places in our, in our business, like what does that actually look like? And a lot of people just put DEI in HR. Yes. So are you seeing any best practices for folks? Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, just, just what you said, Melissa, addressing that, misnomer that DEI belongs solely in HR. Absolutely. HR leaders need to have that as a part of their, of their repertoire. Right. Um, but it can't only live there because then it just kind of gets cornered. And also what we've often found is that you have people who are either brought in or promoted to that C level chief diversity officer. It's what we often see and this is particularly the case with, with folks that are coming from minoritized identity groups, that they tend to be hired or promoted into these positions that are um, not necessarily very stable, and they're not necessarily given the resources to be successful. And um, there's actually a, a ter- term that's been coined, the glass cliff 
to talk about this idea that, you know, we talk about the glass ceiling a lot, but actually the glass cliff is one where, you know, people from these minoritized groups are placed into these leadership positions. And it's sort of like, you should be so happy that you're here, but we're not gonna give you the resources or the staff or the leadership support to be successful. And then when we don't see change happen, we're gonna push you out. Like it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that's where to your point, um, DEI has to be co-owned across the organizational structure. And I think what has stopped a lot of organizations in the past from doing that is um, one, just I think a lack of recognition that that's what's needed, um, but two, a lack of skills and abilities on the part of leaders in these other, or, you know, other corners of the organization. And so absolutely training can be highly valuable to support marketing leaders, to support, uh, you know, procurement leaders, to support customer service leaders, so on and so forth, to know what does it look like for us to bring that DEI lens to our decision-making, our strategy, the way we contribute to the business. In order for that training to be successful, though, people have to know that this is real and that they are going to be held accountable for for those results. And so it comes back to leadership and accountability. Do we have a clear vision? Do we have clear, a clear sense of what uh, progress would look like across the board? And do we have DEI embedded into our performance metrics, especially at those higher levels with the people who have, you know, the purse strings and the, and the power to get the work done? Oh my gosh. You just said a whole mouth, mouthful. That was <laughs> That was awesome because, you know, I can't even tell you how many people is like, I don't have the resources. I don't have the, the people and they they get put in these positions and, you know, there's this expectation to deliver. Um, so I love I love, love, love what you're talking about. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of measuring results and, and what that looks like? Because I think, you know, there are folks struggling to figure out, like, what what do I measure? How do I measure it? And, you know, essentially, how do I hold these leaders accountable when, you know, maybe I'm not measuring things properly? Because, you know, transformational change when you're talking about people, it's it's hard. Yes. <laughs> Oh, there's, there's a lot. And I'm, I'm really happy to see the increasing attention to metrics. Um, and so I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more research out there and a lot more direction that's being provided to leaders and organizations. And yet it's, it's also not a one size fits all. And I think oftentimes what happens is we go for what's the most easily measurable identifier, um, representation. So let's look at our, you know, how many people are we uh, interviewing and hiring into our organization that represents some of these minoritized or, um, or marginalized identity groups? Absolutely, that's critical, especially in some, uh, in some industries and organizations that have been predominantly super homogeneous for a long time. Um, and my question is always, 
Are you looking at the exit interviews? Are you looking at attrition rates? Yes. And, and also, you know, because that would indicate to us that maybe we're able to bring people in, but they're not staying. And mm-hmm. I would want to know why, right? So that's definitely, you know, just from an HR perspective, looking at the full extent of the employee life cycle. Um, where are we recruiting? Uh, how are we doing the recruiting? What do our interview processes look like? What do our job descriptions look like? And who might they be leaving out because they are bringing a biased lens even to who might be qualified for the position? Um, all the way through to who has opportunities for career advancement? Um, what sort of mentorship and sponsorship are you know are folks getting, especially those who are not representative of the majority of the workforce? In addition to all of that, I also think looking at, and it's on, on the organization, on the industry, but you know the communities you serve, your customer population, for example. I'm, I've been doing a lot of work, actually, my team and I have been partnering with um, the, uh, the Association for Animal Welfare Advancement. And so we've had the opportunity to do some pretty deep um, data gathering and analysis with the field of animal welfare overall. And this is specifically focused on um, companion. This is humane societies, animal shelters, um, as well as law enforcement, animal control organizations. Uh, and what's been really powerful, we, we started that process with a, an assessment. And we actually put out a survey and conducted a number of interviews and focus groups with folks representing the broad swath of the profession of animal welfare. And we asked them a lot of questions to gauge what does diversity look like? Uh, does your organization's workforce adequately reflect the populations in your area, for example? And then inclusion. How do people feel being a part of this organization? Do you think that people have a level of comfort being able to talk about uh, diversity issues? Um, how are conflicts resolved, right? So looking at it in terms of inclusion, engagement, belonging, and then equity. Um, in terms of equitable practices and do people feel like they have opportunities to report issues of bullying, harassment, discrimination, microaggressions? Do they feel like leadership takes proper action to hold people accountable? So we look at a whole number of different um, potential indicators for DEI, a whole set of learning experiences and resources for um targeting different identity groups and different job functions across animal welfare. Um, fast forward two years later, um, the, you know, we haven't yet done a follow-up assessment, although that will be coming next because we want to hopefully track progress <laughs> over time. But what I have noticed just kind of anecdotally, and here's where I think, you know, you can measure sort of those specific quantitative markers, but you can also measure, we went to a conference, one of the um, conferences for the, uh, for the profession that thousands of people attend on a yearly basis. And every single conference session and every single panel discussion explicitly brought forth the importance of addressing DEI as mission critical. And in talking with people who were coordinating the conference, they said, we've never done this before. 
And it's now, just now in 2023, that we feel like there's a level of readiness across the profession for people to hear this and demand it and want to be a part of it. So I think even just like that, you know, when we think about metrics, what is the quality of the conversations that are taking place when people gather? And what can that tell us about what is happening at that cultural and systemic level to shift us forward? I love that. Yes, yes. And I, you know, I think it's so powerful when we have those conversations. And, you know, what I've found even with the Jolly podcast is, you know, I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's in everything we do. Um, And so I find myself talking to so many different people, getting so many different perspectives about what they're doing in DEI to make an impact. But it literally it allows you to shift your lens in a way that, you know, even for people who think they're woke, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's like they, you know, there are, there are more glasses to put on when it comes to DEI because there's so many layers to it. Yeah. So I love what you're talking about. What do you think is needed in terms of just fueling lasting change? Mm. Um, Because, you know, people can, measure stuff. But when you think about, you know, like 10 years from now, you talked about like, what's our vision for diversity and, you know, how do we know we're, we've even achieved it. We have all these measurements, but at the end of the day, I mean, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, if you'd asked me that a couple decades ago, when I first started doing this work, I probably would have said, Oh, well, you know, my, my vision is to work myself out of a job. That way I hear where that a lot. I hear that a lot. Conversations, right? And, <laughs> and I, I came to realize that should never be the intent. Because if you look at any other aspect of what makes an organization run, for example, right? You look at IT. And in terms of we don't update our IT processes and then say, cool, we're good for the forever now. <laughs> um We update them and then we update them again. And then we update them again because technology evolves and needs change and we have to adapt to those changes. Same with marketing and advertising, right? If we hit a certain uh, expectation or goal, we don't say, cool, we're done. We're not going to put any more effort into this. We just look at, okay, so what's the next level that we take this to? Um, How do we make sure that we're maintaining our success or even building upon it? And so I think if we bring that same mindset that DEI is a strategic framework from which we need to look at every decision for the future of our organizations and our industries, that's what I want to see us moving forward. That's what's going to lead to sustainable change. I love it. That's awesome. So now I know you have um, MSM Global Consulting, but if I recall, you also have all sorts of things that, you know, people can learn from books and and all sorts of stuff. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and um, how we can join in. Yes. So I had the honor of being able to write and publish a book for the Association for Talent Development Press. in January, 2022. And the book is called Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. 
what's been really fascinating and gratifying for me is even though I wrote this book with a training and talent development audience in mind, um, and it's kind of, I mean, the point of it was to write a comprehensive guide that quite honestly, I wish I had when I first started doing this work that right. I had to learn by trial and error. And, uh, and so just giving people a sense of how do you engage in DEI efforts um, in a way that's going to make them sustainable and a way that's going to be, you know, kind of holistically embedded across the organization. Um, but what's been really gratifying is that I've heard from people who have never done training, whose job descriptions don't have anything to do with HR or talent development, who have found the book to be really valuable because they said, I, I want to be able to understand myself, learn more about this myself, but also to be able to have these conversations and just informally help my team and my organization navigate this. And I've found so many great practical tools in the book. And so that's been really helpful for me to kind of reframe that all of us can wear the hat of the learner and the educator, and it doesn't have to yes. just live within, you know, people who have training in their jobs. I love it. That's fantastic. I mean, then that's really what we want is for everybody to pick up the book and go, oh, I could think different, look different, you know, just kind of, I didn't look at it this way. Now, maybe I have a different, that different lens. So I think that's fantastic. Um, and then I know you also have a podcast. I do. Yes. <laughs> so um, it's called Culture Stew and uh, it's in its fourth season, actually. And the the premise behind uh, the title Culture Stew is that, you know, I, one, I think that all of us, regardless of where we come from, probably have a some ancestors recipe for like the family some sort of soup or stew, or there's something about just like all of the ingredients that get thrown together. Um, yes. Make spices that may, and, and that we often will take that recipe and then make it our own. Um, and I think similarly, when it comes to our identity, we bring that intergenerational collective identity with us. And we sort of add our own little extra spice in there on what we want. And we pass that along to others. So the, the podcast, the focus is on bringing guests who, um, some who are in the DEI world, many who are not, but who bring those multicultural, multidimensional perspectives, have a story to tell, um, and also can help us look at these uh, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion from a variety of different vantage points. So, um, you know, it. our focus is often on storytelling, knowledge sharing, and also a call to action, right? So that yes. feel a sense of like, okay, hey, what do I do with this new information now that I have it? I love it. You are a busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> I know being, uh, being, uh, uh, you are a child of teachers, if I remember correctly. I am. Yes. <laughs> So you have that learning, you know, that kind of lifelong learning component to you. So I know sometimes when children of teachers, they never can sit still because they always have so much to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the combination of being a child of teachers and um, coming from an immigrant family where it's like that, that work ethic <laughs> and focus on education is uh, definitely something I, I continue to carry with me. Probably there are points in time where I could... Um, not take on so much. 
<laughs> not quite so busy. I'm working on that. Working on yeah. that. That's self-care. You know, we're going to work on that for you, Maria. (laughs) I love it. So, and I know you can, you can get your book on Amazon. Yes. Yeah. You can can order it on Amazon as well as um, the ATD website. Okay. And then um, if they want to reach you, how do they, you are MSM Global Consulting. Yes. So our website is msmglobalconsulting.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to our newsletter there, um, find out more about our services and, um, folks can definitely reach, reach me through, um, through that as well, through email, um, info at msmglobalconsulting.com and, uh, and yeah, follow us on socials. We're on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook and all, all the fun stuff. I love it. Now, before we end, cause I know, um, you know, I try to get you out of here in a timely fashion, but I know you started out doing like coaching and stuff with the state department and all of that kind of stuff. How has that been influenced kind of, you know, some of the things that you're doing? Mm, Yes. I spent six years at the foreign service Institute, which is the training arm for the state department. And um, I think it was a really incredible hands-on opportunity to see how these uh, needs and challenges and skills around just broader leadership and management skills, right? As well as um, DEI, and in particular, looking at it from that global lens. Yes. So so many of my my coaching clients were uh, American foreign service officers that were working overseas at embassies that were primarily staffed with local staff. And so trying to create a, a team environment that was culturally responsive and culturally sensitive was really important to, to me <laughs> and I think to many of my, my coaching clients. And also just recognizing that for a lot of these folks, um, they're only in that space for a couple of years. And so I think uh helping people to see that um, the relationships that you build, even when you're only going to be with that team for a short period of time, are incredibly powerful from a long-term perspective because what you do in that time with them and what impressions you leave on them will carry through to the next leader and to the next leader and to the next leader. And so um, that was something that was an incredible learning experience for me, just thinking about how do I coach folks to see their role, not just in terms of who they're with right now, but the legacy that they're going to leave um, and how that can shift not only our cultures, but ultimately our understanding across societal cultures. So yeah, it was, it was really cool work. Yeah, right? That's powerful. Because I mean, especially for somebody who's in that position for a couple of years, how life-changing that experience becomes, you know? And I always tell people, it's like, if you have an opportunity to go travel, go to other countries, do it. Because there is such an understated value to actually experiencing other people's culture mm-hmm. um, or other other places where culture exists in a different way is probably a better way to say it. Um, yes. Because it, you know, it's like, you can't even underestimate just the, 
the impact it, it has on you and your own thought process. So I love all the things that you're doing. I love that I get the opportunity to celebrate you and all of the things that you are doing. So I cannot thank you enough for joining me on the Jolly podcast today. And I hope everybody out there will go out and get her book and, you know, make sure that you're also uh, like and subscribe not only to the Jolly podcast, but to Culture Stew podcast as well. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Any any last tips and and uh, thoughts before you go? Um, Well, it's just been an absolute pleasure, Melissa, and I so appreciate you inviting me on. And I think just final sort of tip from me to anyone listening is um, don't give up the work. And when, you know, when it gets rough, just take a step back, breathe, um, but recognize that all of us have this incredible power to contribute to uh, the, the society, the world that we want to see. So, yeah. Yes, I love it. Stay on the journey with us. Stay on the journey. We need, the boat needs to be full, right? That's right. <laughs> we want everyone to join. So that's awesome. Everyone, Maria Marukian, we are so excited for the work that you're doing. Um, Keep on keeping on. And I'm just excited to see not only you kind of um, impacting the backlash and the inertia, but also um, putting your spin on things. You know, you are, of course, one of the top 10 diversity and inclusion companies Um, And so I just appreciate you being here and I'm looking forward to staying in touch and seeing more about what you're doing. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.